Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is episode three of Call Me Shelley, The Mysterious Disappearance of Michelle Juleson. As always, we should remind ourselves that everyone is to be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Nobody has been charged or even arrested for a crime related to Shelley's disappearance. If you've not already, consider following me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. We also have an awesome Facebook group you might want to check out. In this episode, we will continue to follow in the footsteps of the initial investigation, but we will also be doing some summarizing and analysis of the case, attempting to connect some dots here and there. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode three. How would you get abducted from 140 American to 300 block East Broadway without somebody seeing it on a Tuesday afternoon? I think something happened to her. I think somebody took her. You need to call the police and you need to get yourself a protection order. Burnt Creek Club. Bartender at the Burnt Creek Club. Told her any time after 2 o'clock she could stop by and pick him up and she never did show. And I was specifically looking for that car, Shelly's car. Was one of the group allegedly harassing Shelly at the bar. But there was two, two railroad workers and I thought they talked to one. It's Tuesday, August 9th, and although Bismarck PD doesn't know it yet, the next few days of the investigation will be hit with several whirlwind-like encounters. New characters, new clues, and new twists. And unfortunately, a rabbit hole is about to derail and swallow up the investigation, one that won't be completely understood for another decade when a keen detective named Bill Connor will take a new look at the case. We'll hear from Detective Connor in the next episode, but for now... Here we are on August 9th, 1994, one week since Shelley has been seen. Officer Emmert and others wonder, why was Shelley's car found at the Comfort Inn? Was she there herself? Has the car been sitting there for a week? Did someone dump it there recently? The Comfort Inn has changed locations since 1994. Today, a new Comfort Inn rests just a few hundred yards away from the old location, but the original hotel is there now under the name The Quality Inn. And to this day, at The Quality Inn, there is a lounge with an entrance on the west side of the building. Shelley's car was found near the entrance to that lounge. Emmert makes contact with a blackjack dealer who worked at the lounge on Tuesday, the 2nd of August, a guy named Waylon. Waylon knows Shelley, but he didn't see her that Tuesday night. I could have missed her, I suppose, he says. It got pretty busy that night. Emmert moves on to the elbow room angle and Shelley's encounter with the two railroad workers. On the night she met them, Shelley had been dealing blackjack at the elbow room, and another FALF worker was with her, a woman named Robin. So... Emmert speaks with her. She stated she worked on Sunday at the elbow room with Shelley. She said that Shelley was in a real good mood for a change. She had talked to Shelley about some prank phone calls that Shelley was getting. Shelley thought it was Jenny, who was a barmaid at the Burnt Creek Club, 
She had also talked to Shelley before about Jenny being the one who keyed her car. Then Robin throws some brand new information into the pile. Shelley told Robin that she had met some 40-year-old guy and she was going to go out with him. Robin didn't know who the guy was. Emmert jots this down in his notebook. 40-year-old guy. Name? Question mark. At 9 a.m., Tony Holm, bartender at the Burnt Creek Club, and Shelley's most recent boyfriend walks into the Bismarck police station. Detective Walls and Emmert sit down with him. They ask Tony about that whole Kevin did something to Shelley on Sunday story. Tony says that Shelley called him at about 3.15 to 3.30 a.m. early Monday morning saying something had happened between her and Kevin and she was upset. Tony told her he needed to sleep and they could talk about it later. He saw her on Monday evening at the Burnt Creek Club, but they didn't talk about it then. The next morning, Tuesday, the day she went missing, he talked to Shelley on the phone for two hours, 10 a.m. to noon, and he still didn't get the full details from her about the alleged fight with Kevin. She told him she would talk to him in person sometime. When they finished talking around noon, she indicated she was going to pick up her paycheck and get some bills paid. She mentioned they could probably get together when he got off work on Tuesday night around 7, but he called her and nobody was home at that time, which she didn't think was unusual. The next thing Tony knew, he heard she was missing. Then Walls asked Tony about his whereabouts on Tuesday. He stated he was home getting ready for work, but there was no one there to verify that. He stated at 1.30 p.m., Jenny picked him up to go to work. I asked him who Jenny was, and he stated she was a barmaid at the Burnt Creek Club. I asked him about Shelley's car being keyed and the harassing phone call she was getting. He stated he did not know who would have done that. I advised him that there was some information that he had been involved in the car being keyed because he offered to pay the deductible. He stated he did offer to pay the deductible because he knew she didn't have any money, but he didn't pay it because he was involved. He was only trying to help her out. Detective Emmert pipes in then and asks more about Jenny. I asked him if Jenny may have keyed the car or made the phone calls. He stated he doesn't even think Jenny knows where Shelly lives. He didn't think Jenny even knew Shelly's number. I also asked him about Shelly being harassed at Burnt Creek. He stated she was never harassed out there that he knew of. He thinks the reason she didn't want to work there anymore was because of their relationship being broken off. Finally, the detectives broached the subject of a polygraph test. I talked to Tony about a polygraph. He stated he's been telling us the truth and he would be willing to take a polygraph test. We set up an appointment for later today. Before wrapping up this interview, Burnt Creek Tony has something else to share, yet another character to add to Shelley's story. And we should pay attention to this information because, as far as I can gather from the police file, this new character has never been fully dismissed as a person of interest. And as you will hear later, when we look closer at him, this man had connections to the Burnt Creek Club and the Elbow Room. Tony explains that near the Burnt Creek Club is a construction business named Great Lines, 
Some of the employees from Great Lines are patrons at Burnt Creek. Tony knows these guys by sight, and, well, he's a bartender, so he talks to them. And like any bartender, he picks up on information, gossip, and local chatter. Tony explains that some employees at Great Lines said that one of their co-workers has also gone missing. He didn't come back to work on Wednesday, the day after Shelley was last seen. He stated he knows that Rick Snell from Great Lines, which is located near the Burnt Creek Club, has also been missing since the same day. He stated he doesn't know if Shelley knew Rick, but he does stop at the bar once in a while, so it was possible they did meet. Rick has a wife and three kids who has recently been calling out to Great Lines looking for him, but he doesn't know if she's filed a missing persons report or not. After the interview with Tony, Walls gets on this new name, Rick Snell. He calls the company Great Lines and asks questions, talks to someone named Sherry. Sherry told us that they had an employee that left the job on Tuesday and did not show back up for work. She said that his time card showed that he checked out at 6.15 p.m. She said that he started working for them on May 27th and was a good worker. She said that he called in to work today, Tuesday, August 9th, and asked them to send his check, so he must be back in town now. When I recently interviewed Detective Connor, who worked on Shelley's case from 2005 to 2010, he told me that he's always found it pretty interesting that this guy Rick Snell stopped going to work on Wednesday, August 3rd, but then resurfaced on Tuesday, August 9th, one day after Shelley's car was discovered at the Comfort Inn. As I said, we'll be hearing from Detective Connor and looking closer at Rick Snell in a later episode. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Walls and Emmert are on the move again, headed to speak with Shelley's babysitter, a woman named Tammy. This turns out to be an important interview with valuable information. We'll spend some time on this one. In fact, a little review will be helpful now. Remember, Bismarck PD have learned that Shelley worked at the Elbow Room that previous Sunday. Her co-worker, Robin, said that Shelley arrived at the Elbow Room sometime in the mid-afternoon. Kevin Woodward's story aligns well with this. He recalls Shelley picking up Jaden at about 2.30 p.m., noting she was late for work. Now, Robin also says that Shelley was, quote, in a real good mood when she arrived to work. In other words, nothing to indicate she'd just been involved in anything traumatic, such as a bad argument with Kevin a few minutes earlier when she picked up Jaden. Later that night at the Elbow Room, Robin and the bartender Chris witness Shelley hanging out at the bar with the two railroad workers. When the bartender locks up, she witnesses Shelley talking with the two men outside. That's exactly 1 a.m. Monday, August 1st. 
Now, Tony Holm has told just about the entire upper Midwestern United States that Shelley called him at about 3 or 3.30 a.m. that early morning. That's two to two and a half hours after the bartender witnessed Shelley talking to the two men. Tony claims that Shelley was upset, and she told him then that she'd had an argument with Kevin. If Tony's story is true and accurate, one wonders where and when would Shelley's path have crossed with Kevin's for this interaction to take place. If she was in a good mood at the beginning of her shift at the elbow room, it seems less likely the alleged argument happened just before work. So if you're like me, you might assume the following. One logical explanation would have been that Kevin had been watching their son Jaden Sunday night and that Shelley drove to Kevin's place after the elbow room to pick up Jaden, where an altercation occurred. She then drives home upset and calls Tony. But as the babysitter will now tell us, that was not the case. Jaden was not at Kevin's that night. He was at the babysitter's at Tammy's across the river in Mandan. And Shelley's night gets even more interesting. After Shelley finished work at the elbow room, after she stood talking to those two railroad workers outside, she did not go and pick up Jaden at the babysitter's. She wouldn't do that until the next morning. Listen to this from Walls and Emmert's report after talking to the babysitter. She stated she babysat Sunday night all night. Shelley dropped off Jaden at 3.30 in the afternoon on Sunday on her way to work at the elbow room, and then she picked up Jaden around 10.30 a.m. Monday morning. She stated Shelley doesn't leave Jaden all night long very often, but there is an understanding that if she goes out to have a few drinks, she knows she can leave Jaden there all night and pick them up the next morning. So what did Shelley do that night? Did she just go home and call Tony? Did she hang out with the railroad workers? Maybe this from Tammy, the babysitter, might give us a clue. Tammy said that Shelley was in a really good mood on Monday morning when she picked up Jaden. In a really good mood still the next morning. Does this sound like a woman who had a terrible argument with Kevin or anyone? Something so bad that she couldn't talk about it on the phone at 3 a.m. with Tony. Or does this sound more like a woman who just had a positive experience, more of a good night, and then sort of returns to her everyday life and responsibilities in the morning, picking up her son in a good mood? What experience might that have been? I don't know, perhaps one with a railroad worker, one of those who usually stay at the Comfort Inn, a place she will return to, or at least her car will return to and be ultimately found six days later. You might be thinking, like I wondered, perhaps Tony made up the entire phone conversation from the early morning hours of Monday, August 1st. And that is a possibility. Bismarck PD never had any phone records requested or anything like that. We don't have a list of Shelley's phone calls. However, there is something else that supports Tony's story. We do know that Shelley called at least one other person around that time Monday morning, her friend Larry. Larry didn't talk to her, his girlfriend answered the phone and told Shelley Larry was asleep. So it does seem that Shelley was making calls that night. And if she was making calls, it seems at least a little less likely, perhaps, although not impossible, that she spent the whole night with a railroad worker, either at her own home or in a hotel room. 
So one wonders this, is it possible that Shelley went to Kevin's house after the elbow room, even though Jaden wasn't there and there was an altercation then? Sure, anything's possible, of course, but why would Shelley do that? Shelley's police file is littered with statements about Kevin having done something to Shelley on Sunday, but there is only one single source on this story, and all the others are hearsay. Ground zero is Tony Holm. His story spread like lightning, which is why Shelley's police file is full of statements like this. I heard that Shelley called Tony, or Tony told me that Shelley called him, and so on. Kevin Woodworth has consistently denied having any confrontation with Shelley on Sunday whatsoever. And I should also add, Shelley's cold case file contains no reports of Kevin Woodworth getting detained, arrested, or charged with any crimes of domestic abuse. There are the allegations, of course, made by Shelley's friends based on things they say Shelley told her. And we're not attempting to discredit anyone here, but it is important to remember that Tony is the single source on Shelley and Kevin having some kind of altercation on that Sunday. We ran a background check on Kevin, and he has no criminal record other than a traffic incident. Whatever Shelley did do that night, the next evening, Monday night, she worked at the Burnt Creek Club, while Jaden was again back at Tammy's, the babysitter's. On Monday night, she babysat until 1.30 a.m. while Shelley was working at the Burnt Creek Club. So she picked up Jaden Monday morning and took Jaden back to Tammy in the afternoon. And when she does pick up Jaden just 11 hours before she will go missing, this time she's not in a good mood. She seems off, quiet, distracted. This according to both Tammy and Shelley's friend, Bonnie, who worked with her that night and also met her at the babysitter's afterwards. Tammy the babysitter had some other things to say about Tony and about the police officer named Don Schaefer that was allegedly harassing Shelley. She stated... She knows that Shelley was worried about Tony flipping out from drinking. Shelley's concern was that Tony would flip out from drinking and harm her. We asked her if Shelley ever talked about anyone harassing her at the Burnt Creek Club. Tammy stated on several occasions, Shelley mentioned a guy named Schaefer, who she didn't get along with, and she said Schaefer was a real obnoxious jerk when he drank. Tammy can also shed some light on that, quote, 40-year-old guy that Shelley had met and was planning to go out with. Apparently, Shelley had made some plans to meet this guy on the weekend, that is, the weekend after she ultimately vanished. She also stated this past weekend, August 6th and August 7th, Shelley had plans to go camping with an older guy, and this older guy worked with Shelley's dad. Tammy did not know the man's name. We asked her if Shelley's dad would know about this, and she thought that Shelley's parents would not have known about this arrangement. Walls and Emmert pay a visit to Richard Woodworth, the last person to have seen Shelley, at least the last person who will admit to seeing her. Richard is getting anxious and concerned about his son being treated like a suspect. He doesn't think Kevin should take a polygraph. What gives, he wonders, you guys should be looking in South Dakota at the motorcycle rally. 
Richard also throws the idea of a handgun into the whole algorithm. He claims Shelley asked him to get her a gun and show her how to use it. Walls and Emmert ask Richard to walk them through Tuesday when Shelley dropped Jaden off. Shelley and Jaden arrived around 12.30 and she stayed for 5 or 10 minutes. She said something about needing gas in the car, so the car must have been almost empty. She said she'd be back in two hours, but knowing her, he figured she'd be back around four. They started getting concerned not long after that. Then they called her until about midnight, but they never got an answer. The next day, they called her residence several times, and he says he didn't call Kevin until Wednesday night around 5.30 or 5.45. Kevin tried to locate her, but had no success, so at around 9.30, they called the police. Before Tuesday comes to a close, Emmert does two more things. He heads back to the Comfort Inn and shows Shelley's photo to hotel staff. Nobody recalls seeing her. Another important thing Emmert does is get a list of guests staying at the Comfort Inn on August 2nd and August 3rd. It would be nice to see that list of names today. Unfortunately, that is not possible. That list is also currently missing from Shelley's police file. Perhaps it's some of those 104 pages removed from Shelley's file at the request of the head of investigations. And in case you're wondering, no, the hotel does not have those records anymore. They've since been purged. I want to pop out of the story for a second and talk briefly about the polygraph tests that Kevin and Tony took that week. The graphs themselves are no longer around and the summer reports were not in the Bismarck police file. But there are references to them, and I've also spoken with retired investigators who worked this case, and I've asked them about these polygraph tests. But before I tell you the so-called results, I just want to say that I will not be focusing on the polygraph reports much in this story, nor will I be giving them much thought or time or weight, because quite frankly, I don't believe they are trustworthy. Actually, that's not just my crazy opinion. There's scientific proof that polygraphs are not consistently reliable. Are they better than just flipping a coin? Yes, probably. Do they provide proof? Absolutely not. A person telling the truth can fail a polygraph, and a person who is lying or being deceptive can pass the test. Polygraphs are simply not reliable, which is why they are no longer admissible in the court of law. But because you're likely curious, from what I understand, both Tony and Kevin agreed to take a polygraph, and they both basically passed. Although, investigators accused Kevin Woodworth of attempting to manipulate his test, a claim Kevin finds absurd. In interviews police did with Kevin in later years, he scoffed at the idea, stating he would have no idea how to manipulate a polygraph. It was also determined that some of the questions posed to Kevin were worded in an odd fashion. And there's plenty of information out there if you want to learn more about how unreliable polygraph tests are. I'll put some links in the show notes in case you want to learn more. It's Wednesday, August 10th, a week and a day since anyone has seen Shelley, and Julie Thompson goes back to interview Chris Aziz, bartender at the elbow room. It's time to learn as much as possible about those two railroad workers and to get a better description of them. And as you will hear, it sounds like Shelley had planned on picking up Jaden after work. But as we know, she didn't. On August 10th, I went to the elbow room bar to interview Chris Aziz. 
She is the bartender at the Elbow Room and had seen Juleson on the evening of July 31st. She indicated that Juleson had been working at the gaming site at the Elbow Room on July 31st and that the blackjack had closed at about 11.30. She said there were two males sitting in the bar and after Shelley got off work, she sat at the bar where these two subjects bought her two Colorado Bulldogs. Juleson also had one drink earlier. These were the only three drinks that Juleson had that night. Aziz said that when Juleson came to the bar, she engaged in a conversation with these two subjects. Both subjects said they worked for the railroad and told some gory stories about accidents that had happened with trains. Aziz said that they also talked about children. Subject number one had said that he lived in Grand Forks and had to hire a nanny to babysit his child while he was working. He said that he paid the nanny $1,000 a month. Aziz assumed that subject number one was divorced, as he had mentioned his child, but not his wife. She said that number two did not mention having any kids. The subjects offered to buy Aziz a drink, but she declined as she has not drank for 13 years. When she told them this, subject number two said he had been to Heartview and had checked himself out and was in an outpatient care in Jamestown. Aziz believed that he lived in Jamestown, he also said that he had to call some woman with the railroad when he checked himself out of Hartview. Both subjects were drinking mixed drinks. She thought number two was drinking Southern Comfort or Captain Morgan rum. She could not remember what type of alcohol number one was drinking, but she knew that it was a mixed drink. Subject number two said that he would be leaving Bismarck the next day. However, subject number one said he would be laid over for a couple more days in Bismarck. Aziz interpreted this to mean until Tuesday. Aziz also indicated that Juleson had mentioned having car trouble and that subject number two said that he used to work on cars. Juleson asked him if he could look at her car, but that conversation never went any further. Aziz said that she got the impression that these two subjects knew each other pretty well. The two subjects said that they were staying in a hotel in Bismarck, but Aziz did not know which hotel. Juleson got up to leave at approximately two minutes to one, and both subjects said something to the effect of, you're not leaving yet, are you? Juleson then told them that she had to go pick up her son. Both of the subjects got up and went out following Juleson. Aziz said that she locked up the bar, and when she locked the front door, Juleson and the two subjects were talking outside the front door. She had no idea what they were talking about, and said that she did not see a vehicle which would have belonged to the two subjects. She said that the hood was not up on Juleson's car at that time, and she did not know if subject number two ever looked at her car. Aziz described the two subjects as follows. Subject number one, possibly from Grand Forks, five foot six to five foot seven with a thin build, about 25 to 26 years of age, dark, collar length, wavy hair, brown eyes, no glasses or facial hair, railroad type hat, no logo, but it stood a little higher than a regular baseball cap. It was multicolored, but she could not remember what the colors were. He was wearing jeans, no other clothing description. Subject number two, possibly from Jamestown, 5'8 to 5'9 with a stocky or heavy build. 
She said that he talked a lot with his hands, and she noticed that his side under his left hand and arm was very flabby. About 28 to 30 years of age, wavy, sandy blonde hair, collar length, unknown color of eyes, no glasses or facial hair, and was not wearing a cap, wearing a blue tank top and jeans. She could not remember anything else specific about the subjects, but said that she would recognize them if she saw them again. Aziz said that she would call if she thought of any more information or if the subjects stopped in again. She said that she had never seen them in the elbow room before. If you were to ask a random Bismarck investigator on that Wednesday afternoon where they thought the investigation should focus, they might have a random answer for you, something like eeny, meeny, miny, mo." Eeny was Kevin and Richard Woodworth. Meany might be Tony and his Burnt Creek clue, Miney, a couple of railroad workers. And finally, Mo, Rick Snell, the man who worked near Burnt Creek Club, didn't return to work on Wednesday, then suddenly resurfaced about the time Shelley's car was discovered. But for Walls, Eeny, Meeny, Miney, Mo didn't quite cover everything. He had yet other leads he wanted to follow up on. He figured they should check out this 40-year-old guy Shelley'd been planning to go camping with. He calls the Oliver County Sheriff Gordon Albers, where Shelley's parents live. Albers snoops around and comes back with a name, a guy named John, who works with Shelley's dad. The Julesons didn't know anything about John asking Shelley out, probably because John and Shelley didn't want them to know. When Walls tells the Julesons that John had been pursuing Shelley, they're not upset, though. They just say that there's no way John has anything to do with this. Today, John lives in Hazen, North Dakota. I've been to his house, knocked on his door in 100-degree heat. No answer. Left my card on the doorstep. But so far, I've not heard anything nor met the man. Hope to talk to him soon, though. For the last ten minutes or so of this episode, we will slip out of a purely chronological telling of events and focus on three main parts of the investigation. Three things that would take place over the approximately two weeks starting that Wednesday, August 10th. Jumping back and forth between these three things as they actually played out chronologically, that would just be too jarring for us, so we'll take one at a time. The three things are, number one, railroad workers, number two, a rabbit hole, And number three, some peculiar things that took place right after that rabbit hole. So let's go starting with number one, railroad workers. The Burlington Northern investigator, Russ Bryant, provides Walls with four names of employees he believes were in Bismarck. I'm not sure I'll pronounce them all correctly, but he offers Walls these names in sets of two. He thinks Shelley might have run into either Mayer and Helbing or Ogard and Cesarwinski. Unfortunately, there's no indication in the police report whether any of these four men had ever been in Hartview. You'll recall that one of the men Shelley met said he had been. The first set of names, Mayer and Helbing, are of immediate interest to investigators because Russ Bryant tells Walls that he learned the following. At around 3 a.m. last Wednesday, August 3rd, so we're talking about 15 hours after Shelley dropped off Jaden. Mayer and Helbing were kicked out of the swimming pool at the Comfort Inn Hotel. They were in the company of two women. Someone working at the Comfort Inn, who had seen Shelley's missing persons flyer, 
had said that the photograph of Shelley looked like one of the women kicked out of the pool that night. As luck would have it, both of these men were scheduled to be back on rotation within days, back in Bismarck, back at the Comfort Inn. So, Walls sends a cop named Sievert to the Comfort Inn to talk to them. Sievert goes to room number 220, Mayor's room. He shows Mayor a photo of Shelley. Never seen her before, he says. So Sievert asks about that Tuesday night and getting thrown out of the pool at 3 a.m. Mayer gives him the rundown. He and Helbing went to a bar, Borrowed Bucks, which is downtown, pretty close to the elbow room. He said he didn't actually remember much. They met two women there. He didn't remember their names for sure, thought maybe one of them was a Linda. He says both women were closer to 40 years of age and much thinner than the photo of Shelley. They got back to the hotel in a car belonging to one of the women. He doesn't remember the car exactly, but it wasn't a Ford Thunderbird, he says. Sievert asks what happened at the pool, but Mayer doesn't remember much. He doesn't remember if the women changed into bathing suits or what. He does remember some guy with a cowboy hat, though. This guy had been at Borrowed Bucks, too, and had somehow met them later at the Comfort Inn. Sievert goes to another hotel room and speaks with Helbing. His memory is better and confirms most of what Mayer said. The women they met at Borrowed Bucks were between 35 and 40, and they were both slender. Neither of them were Shelley Juleson, that much he was sure of. Helbing also remembered the cowboy and recalled he had followed them in a separate vehicle from the bar to the hotel. The cowboy had raised some hell about beer, and this alerted the staff and got them all kicked out of the pool. The girls went home and didn't stay at the hotel. Bismarck PD also looked into the other set of names, Ogard and Cesarwenski. I should note that while they looked into these two railroad employees, simultaneously that whole rabbit hole was starting to take shape. We'll be looking at that in a minute. When reading the report, I get the feeling that the rabbit hole was starting to dominate most attention to the case. I'm wondering if that explains how the Ogard Cesarwenski lead was handled or not really handled. Here's what happened. Detective Walls runs down Ogard and talks to him. Ogard says he's not been at the elbow room for years. He also claims he wasn't even in Bismarck then. He shows Walls a notebook which supposedly lists his schedule, and Walls notes that it says Ogard would have been in Jamestown from the morning of Tuesday, August 3rd. Walls takes Ogard's word for it, maybe because of the rabbit hole, and this whole railroad worker lead seems less important at the time. It seems like it was less important because, from what I can see, they never speak with the other guy, says Erwinski. There's no mention of it anywhere, not in 94, not in Connor's investigation from 05 to 2010, nor in a later investigation. I wondered if anyone had ever talked to him. I located him in North Dakota and sent him a letter, tried to call him, tried to friend him on Facebook. At the time of this recording, I have not succeeded in getting in touch with him. That was the first of three things I wanted to tell you about that was going on throughout August of 94. Now let's look at number two, the rabbit hole. Here's what happened. 
A guy named Nick walks into the dentist office in Bismarck and looks at a missing persons flyer. After his dentist appointment, he drives to the police department and tells them the following. He's a truck driver, he says, and he'd been at the Flying J truck stop in Fargo at 1.30 a.m. that morning. He says he saw the girl in the missing persons flyer at the truck stop. She was using the CB radio asking truckers for a ride down south, he said. She was with a scruffy-looking guy, and they were asking people for money. On learning this, Bismarck PD faxes the missing persons poster to the Cass County Sheriff's Department. I don't know if you've ever seen a fax of a photograph, but I can tell you the quality is often quite terrible. A sheriff's deputy takes the faxed copy to the Flying J and starts showing it around. When Wes Julson hears about this potential sighting, he is soon on his way to Fargo too, where he puts up more missing person photos, asks more people if they'd seen his daughter. Wes Julson travels everywhere, asks everyone, stops at nothing. Eventually, a woman named Amy sees one of those flyers and calls in a tip. She claims she saw Shelley at an event called Wee Fest in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. Shelley is alive and well, she says. Good afternoon. We are live from Wee Fest. There is more in 94 here, about 40,000 people somewhere out there, whether they're milling around in front of the, uh, the grandstand or whether they're back in their campers getting ready for some of these big acts. Who knows? But we got lots of folks here, lots of stuff to do, and we'll be talking about, uh, well, sort of the behind-the-scenes story at Wee Fest. We'll also have- I called Amy Sandsburn. She told me she'd talked to Michelle at Wee Fest twice. She said they partied together on Friday, August 5th. Michelle was with a subject by the name of Tom. She thought Tom was from Bismarck. Amy said Michelle was in a good mood. She said Michelle mentioned she was having some problems back in Bismarck, but didn't want to talk about them. Amy said she talked to Michelle on Monday, and she said she was headed back to Bismarck. I asked Amy if she was sure that it was Michelle she talked to. She said that she is positive. She said she has known Michelle for six years. Amy said that she worked in gaming in Bismarck and met Michelle there. She could not tell me much about Tom, other than he drove a black Chevy or Ford pickup. She said there was nothing unusual about the pickup. She did not notice what state the license plates were from. Days later, Walls and Sievert traveled to Minnesota to speak with Amy in person. Sergeant Sievert and I interviewed Amy Sandsburn. Amy told us that all that Michelle wanted to do was party and forget about her problems. And so, Detective Walls wrote the following in his report. I told Linda and Wes Jewelson that we were going to close this case because there was no crime if Shelley went missing on her own free will. I told them we would let them know if we heard anything about her whereabouts. And then he writes this, all in capital letters. Michelle Jewelson is apparently missing of her own free will. Therefore, this case will be filed exceptionally cleared. And that, as they say, was that. You might be wondering why I'm calling this a rabbit hole. 
Well, frankly, it would be discovered years later that Amy Sandsburn was not telling the truth. We will hear all about that next time because Detective Connor is the one who got to the very bottom of that ten years later. So it seems it was a rabbit hole, but of course Bismarck PD didn't know that at the time. Apparently they considered Amy to be credible. Now finally, number three, I want to tell you about a couple things that happened around that same time. First of all, as I already mentioned, the head of investigations, Myron Heinley, instructed Walls to remove a whole section of Shelley's file. This is what Walls wrote in his report on August 29th. Lieutenant Heinley directed me to remove attachments I-1 to I-104 from this report and take Michelle's car to the impound lot. I've asked law enforcement officers when and why one section of a report would be removed, and so far nobody really has an answer. They don't seem to understand it themselves. And there is one last interesting thing I want to share with you before we wrap up this episode. Three weeks after Shelley was last seen, Detective Walls was informed that Tony Holm had left town. In fact, he likely left the state, as he would soon pop up in Minnesota. I'll repeat that. Three weeks after Shelley vanished, Burnt Creek Tony left the state. The word on the street was that Tony got busted a couple of times for driving while intoxicated, and he didn't want to return to court and face the charges. I did some research, and yes, it's true, Tony had gotten a couple of DUIs recently. In fact, I found it interesting that his last DUI in North Dakota occurred on Friday, July 29th. That's the Friday before Shelley went missing. I don't know what that means, if anything, but it's true. If nothing else, we can just say that in the summer of 1994, there sure was a lot going on in Shelley's life and in the lives of people close to her. Forum Communications and Dakota Spotlight have put great effort in making contact with Tony Holm. I've sent him a letter in the mail, left voicemail messages, and sent emails to five separate email addresses we've been able to gather. So far, I've been unable to make contact with him. But we will keep trying, and our door is always open. It is important that Tony is provided an opportunity to tell us his side of the story and respond to our reporting on this case. As I mentioned in previous episodes, we have gotten in touch with Kevin Woodworth, and he has declined to comment. Still yet to come in this season of Dakota Spotlight, we will meet Shelley's parents and friends and two investigators who worked on this case years later. Also, I still hope to find and talk to John and Hazen, Rick Snell, a railroad worker, and others. In fact, we'll start in the next episode when a colleague of mine and I go looking for Jenny, former barmaid at Burnt Creek Club. Right there. Oh, cool. And then there's a car there. What do you think the odds are that she lives here still? So? I'd say it's about 50. Okay. That is, a, that is an immaculate lawn. Yeah. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight.
Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, written, researched, and recorded by me, James Walner. Special thanks to my colleagues at Forum Communications for lending us their voices. That's Jim Manny, Trisha Tarinskas, Chris Kurzman, and Jeremy Fugelberg. Music by Wowza in Kalamazoo. You can check them out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on bandcamp.com. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. Once again, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.